Hello and welcome to Hey, I Loved That Movie, the podcast where we rewatch the films we loved when we were younger to see if they still hold up. I'm Dan. I'm Michael. I'm Helena. And for this episode, we have special guest, author of the Hunted series, it's Gabriel Bergmoser. Hi, I'm Gabe, and today we're talking about The Prince of Egypt. So was this a childhood classic for you? Very, very much. Um, But there's, there's a few things I want to say about The Prince of Egypt. But before I do that, I'm really curious to know, had you guys seen the movie before? And if so, slash if not, what did you guys think of it? I had not seen it. It was fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my heart's fa- bleeding just a little bit right now. But, um... <laughs> I'm fairly sure I saw it when I was a kid, but I think my parents decided it was a little bit too religious. That's cool. That's cool. And I didn't like it because it didn't have any princesses in it That's and reasonable. disney kind of had the very very much i had i had a type of film i enjoyed and it mostly revolved around princesses and um princes especially you know didn't even get married oh we did get married but anyway she's not a princess didn't interest me at all <laughs> i had seen it when i was a kid a couple times and i remember it as a kid but it, i think it for me it fell into that category of when i was a kid because it was like animated to me it's oh it's akin to a cartoon it's it's a fun film for kids it wasn't um, I fell into the same trap with Watership Down, uh, <laughs> where you're like, oh, watch this, it's animated. Um, I didn't appreciate it as a kid, because mm-hmm. I was a child. I was like a very small child when I saw it, and you should probably should, probably shouldn't have now watching it back. But like now I, I, I appreciate it a lot more um, as like a film, and, and as like from an era of animation that was kind of, as we have discussed before on this podcast, a, a mess. Um, it's nice that something very, very, like, artistically driven came out of it. It's interesting kind of hearing all of this because, uh, Helena, like you, I think I had a type as well as a kid. And um, it turned out that my type was films in which vast amounts of infants are fed to crocodiles. Because this film was 100% my type. And, you know, it's funny. This is where I make a bit of a confession to you guys because... When um when Dan reached out to me and was like, do you want to jump on the show? I was like, yes, I do. And I was thinking, okay, well, what's a film that I loved when I was younger and have, don't periodically revisit? Or a film that's kind of like, you know, yeah. descended into the annals of nostalgia, but hasn't necessarily uh, been something that's been like a mainstay of, I guess, my my cinematic revisitation schedule of late. And I really couldn't think of anything because, you know, anybody who knows me or sort of knows my work or anything, probably is aware of two things, which is that A, I'm incredibly obsessive and B, I'm incredibly nostalgic. So basically anything that I loved as a kid, you can probably bet I'm going to watch a lot as an adult. So the few films I could think of that I loved when I was younger, but I hadn't revisited in years, I was like, well, are they gonna be that interesting to talk about? Like really? And then I just kind of felt myself veering towards The Prince of Egypt. And I was like, I'm gonna cheat slightly and suggest The Prince of Egypt and it's a cheat because I rewatched this film a lot. But it was something that I saw when it came out at the movies. I think I saw it about two or three times at the movies. And it just completely, completely blew my mind. Like 1998, we're talking, I would have been seven years old. And I had never seen anything like this before. So, you know, I mean, I was like, like all kids growing up in the 90s, you know, I was used to Disney stuff or whatever else. But I don't think I'd yet seen anything at a cinema that I guess set my imagination on fire the way that this film did. Because straight away, like from the opening scene, you know, you've got the vistas of Egypt and the, the dust and sand blowing across all of it. And those first like booming wails of deliver us. And you're just like, wait, what, what is this? Like, and I showed it to a friend the other night 
And she was like, this is not a children's movie. And I was like, no, this is not a children's movie. And Definitely not. I watched it as a child and I was just so, so enraptured by this film. And I remember walking out of it and I was not from a religious family. I'm not a religious person now. But I remember walking out and saying to my dad, uh, so dad, it said at the start that it was taken from the book of Exodus. So there's a book. Can I read the book? And dad's like, um, <laughs> he's like, well, I mean, I, I, I guess if you, if you want to. So he, he goes and he buys me a Bible. And, um, you know, I didn't really make any association for what this was. I was just kind of like, oh, yeah, cool. You know, that's the book that the story's from. And um, so I flicked through it until I find the story of Moses. And I was like, the film's a lot better than this. Because, like, as you know, if you read the Bible, like, it's very, um, you know, it's very allegorical and it's very kind of like Moses went unto Pharaoh and spake unto him, let my people go, etc, etc. Whereas what I love about this film is that it takes effectively the, I guess, the broadly sketched outline of the story that you get in the book of Exodus and it fills it in with living, breathing characters and emotion and pain and pathos and heart. And the thing I always kind of come back to was... My first week at film school, I remember we were going to a lecture where they were talking about the essence of storytelling and the essence of conflict in cinema. And this lecturer, who was this, like, you know, stodgy old man, he was going on about all kinds of, like, film theories and stuff that I was trying to pretend to be interested in but were kind of flying over my head. And, or or maybe a better way to put it is trying to pretend to be smart enough to understand it. And then he says, he says to the group, the best example of conflict I've ever seen in any film, or the best and purest and most effective example of conflict I've ever seen, is The Prince of Egypt. To which I just like, I sat up and I was like, wait, what? Please tell me more. And he explained it really beautifully, where he said, what you've effectively got is the story of these two brothers who've grown up loving each other. One is the second born, and he doesn't have really any responsibilities. He can effectively just be a playboy for his whole life. And the older one is being told time and time again, He's destined to be the pharaoh. He's destined to be the morning and the evening star. And the one thing he cannot be is the weak link. You know, there's that great line where Seti yeah. says to him at the start, one weak link can break the chain of a mighty dynasty. And so Ramses's whole thing is that I can't be the weak link. I can't be the weak link. And then due to circumstances completely outside of either of their control, they're driven apart. You know, Moses finds out that he's in fact one of the Hebrews who have been enslaved and basically massacred by the Egyptians. He heads out to the desert. He stays out there, he basically runs away from his responsibilities, he lives this kind of quiet provincial life as a shepherd, and then, as anybody who has a passing familiarity with the Bible of this film knows, God comes from the form of a burning bush and says, you have to return to Egypt and let your people go. Which brings him back into conflict with his brother, who is now the Pharaoh. And it's in that second half of the film that I find it so, so emotionally engaging as a drama because it is ultimately a story of these two brothers who never stop loving each other. There's still so much warmth and heart and connection between the whole back half of the film. And the thing is, you, you feel for Ramesses. Like, obviously, he's he's the antagonist. Obviously, he's, you know, party to slavery. He's threatening to commit another genocide at the end. But because of the way he's been set up from the start, you completely understand why he doesn't think there's anything wrong with that, why he thinks this is okay, because that's the world he's been brought up in. He's been surrounded by all of this pressure of, this is what the Pharaoh does, this is what your role is, and this is what the role of the Hebrews are. And you see that that great subtle shot where, um, where Moses first comes back to Egypt, and they're standing in the palace. In the background, you can see 
the big statue of Seti, his father, which you saw in the early scenes, but then there's like an even bigger statue of Ramses, like dwarfing him. And you realize the whole thing yeah. is that Ramses is like, I have to be bigger than my father. I have to be better than my father. I have to be this, I have to be this, I have to be this, I have to be this. And Moses coming to him being like, I'm pleading with you to let these people go or it's all going to get worse. And Ramses just cannot hear that. He cannot hear that because it would be at odds with everything his whole identity is built around. And it is so, so beautifully tragic because the way that it goes kind of can't go any other way. And even by the end of it, we get that final moment of Ramses on the rock kind of screaming out Moses you still kind of feel for him. And I remember as a kid feeling for him and being like, this isn't what I'm used to. Like I'm used to watching films where the villains are purely irredeemable. They are purely just like monsters and they get their just desserts and everything's happy. But it's not like that in this film. You know, you get to the end and Ramsey's on the rock and you have Moses looking across the water and you can see that he's still in pain, but he's like, I have to turn away from it and I have to, you know, lead my people and fulfill my duty now and turn to my new family. But it's such a bittersweet melancholy ending even though he's achieved what he set out to achieve and I love that this film lets you sit in the discomfort of all of that stuff because so many children's movies so many you know children's animated movies from this era would not have gone near it so you know to me this is a film that blew my mind as a kid that was absolutely one of my favorites so probably like changed my understanding of what stories could be and it's something that every couple of years when I revisit it I am still wowed by the fact that this was something that was allowed to be made. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think um, the last thing you said there, the the whole, it you shocked it was allowed to be made. Uh, that was the only thing I was thinking about whilst I was watching it. Like, I, I was fully paying attention to the story, and it is a, an amazing story. It A weird medium to choose is animation from, like, a marketing standpoint. You would expect to go into it thinking, oh, this is a film for children it's it's a simplified oh like i went into it thinking it's probably a simplified version of the story of moses and it's not it's very complex and like a pretty close retelling whilst adding a ton of character to the story because this film kind of bombed it didn't make much money when it came out um i think and it's kind of like yeah well no other film at the time came out was like this uh since then no one has really made a film an animated film about something like this. You've got Joseph, King of Dreams. Well, that was the prequel, rather. <laughs> the was prequel, it? because, yeah, of course, this film also got a straight-to-video prequel, because <laughs> literally yes, every film... The 90s, and that's what they did. <laughs> yeah, like, it, it, it is a very complicated film, and it, it's strange that it comes out, and Prince of Egypt kind of stands alone in, in sort of film history as, like, they did this, and, and it's complex, and it's difficult, and then they, it's an animation, and whether it's an animation because that's the only way they could make it, and, and keep it what they wanted, maybe they, because it was experimental CGI traditional animation mix, which historically didn't go well, and they kind of stopped doing it across the board. This is maybe one of the few films that did it really well and successfully. Yeah, I think it's. I think the point you made of it—it's amazing that they got this film made and they made it—is really interesting. I like, yeah, I feel like in some ways, you know, it's the question of the medium is really interesting because, uh, God, it must have been five or six years ago now when they released the um, what was it, the Ridley Scott movie, uh, Exodus: Gods and Kings, and one of my mates and I—he also grew up in the Prince of Egypt. We were really excited for this because we were thinking, oh, awesome! It's like a live-action Prince of Egypt. How good's that going to be? And we, I think we got through like 20 minutes of it and we were like, this is terrible. 
And I, that, that, I guess that kind of got me thinking about, um, I guess about the medium and about the choice of medium for this, because because you're right, it's, it's a very, very dark story. It doesn't pull its punches. You see a lot of children die in this film. Like a lot and... of children. Oh, where the, where the kid of... drops <laughs> like the pot. Yeah. The, the, the kid yep. drops the pot on it and the arm, you, you hear the pot drop, like smash, and yep. the arm just flop out dead. Yeah. I knew the and, story and I mean, of Moses. It's... More than I knew, like the story of like the Prince of Egypt film. Like I, I was because I was I went to Christian schools growing up, so I knew about Moses, Red Sea, Ten Commandments, all of that. And I don't know if we were ever shown this film as like an example or not, because I, um, the people Probably in charge allowed. of my RE were like very, very fundamentalist. So I'm not sure right. what they'd have thought of this film if they thought it was great or if they'd have thought it was, you know, too much character. Too... They added yeah. too much to the Bible. But, but it's funny uh... because <laughs> the changes it chooses to make are not to soften like really much of anything. I mean, yeah, there's like mm. there's some re- like if they were to continue and tell more of the story about like I get from what I vaguely remember what happens after you know they spend the forty years wandering the desert or whatever it is, and then a whole bunch of messed up stuff happens. Like, yeah, okay, that might be harder to get away with, but even as it stands. Maybe this gets away with stuff because it's more um, supernatural stuff inflicting this pain than it is humans doing it to each other, which I guess is what kind of happens later in this story. But, you know, the other thing I wonder is because, you know, here in Australia, I don't know what you guys have over there, but when it comes to, like, the rating system of movies, The Prince of Egypt is rated G, which is, like, the general exhibition, you know, the children's films, like, anybody can watch them. And coming back to what you said before, Michael, about like watching it and being like, I don't think I should have seen this as a kid. I I don't necessarily know that really small children should watch this film. I mean, I guess I must have been seven when I saw it, six or seven. And I feel like by any estimation, that was probably slightly too young, but I didn't care because I don't know if, if I'd been older, maybe it wouldn't have had the impact it had on me because, you know, I would have started watching darker things anyway. But I, coming back to the medium just for a second, did you guys see, so I'm going to go on a very slight tangent here, but did you guys see the Netflix live-action Cowboy Bebop adaptation? Yes, I did, actually, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not really an anime fan, so I actually quite enjoyed it because I've not seen the anime. Interesting. But, yeah. A lot of people say that if they don't, if they're not really in love with the original. Now, I'm extremely in love with the original, and I was a I was an ardent defender of the live-action remake up until i saw it because a lot of my friends who who loved the original were like oh no 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 it's gonna be terrible it's gonna be terrible look the trailers suck and it looks bad and it looks cheap and it's this and it's this and it's this and it's this and i love cowboy bebop so much that i was just like no i I just want more and i'm not somebody who is a massive hardcore stickler for accuracy and adaptation like i would rather a new voice comes in and stays true to the spirit of the original, but does something, you know, f- finds new notes to play. It doesn't just kind of like try to very meticulously follow the original. Cause th- there's a reason that the prisoner of Azkaban is the best Harry Potter film. Right. So I was sort of thinking, no, no, I don't mind if it's not like, you know, completely true to the letter or everything about the look of the original. But then I saw it and I was like, Oh God, you just fucked it up on every possible yeah. level. Like you, you <laughs> desperately wanted to evoke some of the most iconic images of the original, but you also wanted to change so much of the plot 
that what you get is this really contrived mismatch where none of the characters act like they're supposed to act. It doesn't look, move, or feel like it's supposed to feel, but then the original songs and shots that you have included feel so out of place because they've come from the stylized, heightened world of anime, and you're trying to put them in live action where you've attempted to temper everything else to make it a bit less, or I guess to tone it down a bit to make it fit live action more, except for these certain things. So when they happen, they stand out like a sore thumb. And I just think everything about that show was was terribly calibrated, but it really got me thinking about how for some stories animation is just the best medium. And, you know, in something like Bebop or in anime, you have the ability to, you know, to have human beings moving in ways that they wouldn't move otherwise, to have people reacting yeah. and behaving in ways they wouldn't do otherwise because it's heightened, you know, it's like opera where everything's kind of like amped up, everything's a bit over the top, everything's a bit extreme, and there's sort of this like, I guess this tacit agreement with the audience that this isn't supposed to be realistic and that's okay. And that's why I think animation is such a great medium for The Prince of Egypt because right from the opening shot, the film looks like a painting. Like, you know, the backdrops and the way everything appears, it is so strikingly beautiful and so composed and it has that really unique visual style where it's merging CGI animation with, with traditional hand-drawn animation and with backdrops that clearly are like hand-done paintings but then, you know, effects like the water parting and everything, then the more traditional animation of the characters in the foreground. And even they have like this slightly heightened kind of almost like hieroglyphic statue kind of look to them. And to me, all of that works in concert to make to make you buy into the film. I mean, I think the the failure of the live action version or versions, there's been a few of them, and I don't think any of them have been that well received apart from maybe the Charlton Heston one in the 50s. But all of, all of those, it's like you almost... I guess it's just easy to suspend your disbelief and it's easier to buy into a heightened story and into heightened emotions and into something that is as huge and in your face and dark and epic and extreme as this when it's done in that animated style that gives it almost the, I guess the veneer of myth or like I said before of opera. And I can't believe I'm saying all of this about a 90s children's cartoon, but I really think <laughs> in the case of The Prince of Egypt, it's valid because it's not a children's cartoon. So how else do you classify it? Like it was, it was marketed as a children's cartoon. It has like tiny little concessions, like, you know, Hotep and Ahoy, the priests and like little things that kind of gesture towards like, you know, the Disney comic relief of the era. But apart from that, it really doesn't veer into that territory at all. And I feel like, the, I think it's such a deeply felt film where clearly the people making it were so passionate about it, but they knew that the only way they were going to get to tell the story in this way was to position it as a children's animated film. And that maybe is what kind of damned it a little bit because it came out in that era where people were sort of, you know, expecting a very different thing and they got this instead. But then if you made this film for adults, it never would have gotten the budget that was needed for it to be made on this scale. So I feel like there's this weird kind of catch-22 thing going on with this film, which means that in some ways it's become this like forgotten thing where the people who grew up with it, or a lot of the people who grew up with it, absolutely adore it. But so many people didn't catch it growing up, and it doesn't really have that like seminal childhood staple thing of like a Lion King or a Mulan or any any like you know Disney animation you care to name. And I think that's a massive shame on the one hand, but on the other hand, I love it because it kind of just adds to this like, you know, sort of little feeling I have that I'm like, but this is mine, you know? This is, this is like my little like, you know, favorite beloved mm. cult film, you know? I, the more you talk about it, the more I'm sort of trying to like <laughs> this film because I wasn't particularly thrilled watching it. It really brings back a lot of, uh, not, not trauma, 
but like I was very much a non-Christian in a quite a Christian environment um, growing sure. up. So like my parents were very worried about, basically there was like, you know, I don't know if you have them like Girl Scouts and brownies and cubs and that in Australia. Yeah, we do. Brownie, like it's traditionally faintly religious. The sect in my area was run by these like real hardcore fundamentalists, evolutionism myth kind of people. So my parents were like, no, you cannot join brownies. And I, I wasn't allowed to go to like, they ran a lunchtime club at school and I wasn't allowed to go to that and things like that. So I was always torn between knowing in my heart that I didn't believe in God when everyone else around me seemed to, but also really wanting to and um, really wanting to be part of this. Because um, they did fun things. Like they very much lured children in with like fun activities to then sort of indoctrinate them. And I had a, um, a similar experience where I find I went to like this, um, it was this weird evangelist thing that used to set up literally down the road from me growing up. And it was there every year. And my parents would never let me go until one day when I was like 13. I was like, no, mum, I'm old enough to decide for myself. I'm going to go. So I took my like one Christian friend that I had and I was like, we're going to go to this. And it started off really sort of similarly to this film. It was like, it was all fun and games, very much like the start where they're chasing each other on the um, chariots. And then it got sort of darker and darker until they it sort of started. They had like a Christian rock band that were playing who then sort of started singing some quite sad ballads. And then they sat us all down and we had to talk about um, they told us about how Jesus died and they didn't hold back. And much the same way this film doesn't hold back. They really, really went for it. And it was like describing how much pain he was in, how agonizing it is to be crucified, like the how the blood was running down his legs, how he was stuck with a sword to prove that he was dead. I was 13, but there were kids that were like four or five in the uh, audience there crying. And um, yeah, it sort of struck me as like in these sort of stories, they don't hold back. And it actually, it brings about this Christian guilt and fear that is actually a big part of the religion. I don't, I mean, obviously everyone's experience is different, but that's how I sort of experienced it growing up. And this film's really brought back some of that. Yeah. Um, that sly kind of, <laughs> like, you're going to believe, because if you don't, then you're technically on the other side and your firstborn's going to get killed. Yeah, it's, that, that's a really interesting read on it that I, I guess I hadn't really thought about it before because I didn't, like, I don't know, like, I, I didn't have, like, a super religious upbringing. Like, I moved schools a lot when I was younger because my parents moved around a lot. And the school I was in when I first saw this was, you know, just a very secular public school. But then I went to quite a religious school for my next few years. And... But it was it was religious, but it wasn't it wasn't like that kind of religious, you know. It wasn't the you know Jesus died for your sins and you'd better believe or else. But I guess you know it's funny because you watch those films like um like Jesus Camp or something, and you see the ways in which like particularly in America, like fundamentalist Christians do manipulate kids by effectively traumatizing them, being like Jesus went through all of this and this and this and this and this, and it's that really. I don't know, that, that manipulative thing about that story and the way that story is often told in those settings, it always makes my skin crawl because it's like, well, you're taking very susceptible children and you're making them, you know, you're making them sort of believe that they, you know, trying try to like evoke in them the pain that you believe Jesus went through and, be, and, and then be like, because of that, you have to believe or else. I mean, that's, that's just, that's just an awful, awful thing to do. I don't, I guess I don't, ah, it's tricky because I totally see the read of it, which is like, believe or your firstborns will die. I guess the way that I always viewed it, because I wasn't in a particularly religious space when I first saw it, is that I looked at it the same way that I would look at, like, myth. Like, like the same Hercules. way that I would look at, like, yeah, like a Norse myth or a Greek myth or something where it's like, yeah, I buy into the reality of the story for the sake of the story. And that, yeah, this is a world where God exists and he can do this. 
But I kind of like the fact in this film that it... and Because I think that that's the level on which you, you access it if you're not religious, right? Like, I think if you're a religious person, you experience it differently. And I think a lot of religious people would maybe be quite upset about it because of some of the liberties it takes and whatever. But ultimately, I don't know, I think I love the fact that it portrays God as this absolutely terrifying force that isn't really mm-hmm. benevolent in the slightest like he's he's quite scary. Oh, yeah. He's quite you know he's really that he's like super old testament, super yeah, old testament, like right? And it's old like testament. and what I think makes the film work ultimately is the fact that it, it roots the drama in the characters. Like I was sort of saying before, but you know when God does turn up, he's not this like comforting, good presence that's like you know welcoming you in. Like he's he's quite scary the way that like like Zeus was scary in the old Greek myths, or Odin was scary, or whoever else. So. I don't know if that sort of created like a bit of a separation for me, but I can I can totally see that read on it and appreciate that. You didn't feel like inclined to believe that uh, it was a true story, true story, or based on a true story. I guess because, like I said, not long after I saw this film, I did go to a religious school, and you know, I was young enough to kind of take everything they were saying for granted and be like, oh yeah, God kind of exists, but. I wouldn't say that I felt as though the Prince of Egypt had manipulated me or pushed me in that way. That was more kind of coming from the school and everything. Um, I, I definitely didn't walk out of this film being like, I have to I have to believe in God or else, you know? And then I went and like got a Bible okay. and literally just read the um the Moses part of it and I was like, Oh well, that wasn't as good as the as good as the film. I find it really I find it really interesting that you knew about that you found out about Moses essentially through, <laughs> through the this film, film. Yeah. Whereas, you didn't read the you know book I had first. a I had a you know baby's first bible and you know I'm sure that it had the tale of you know it, I had been told the stories of Moses but I'm pretty sure because I was surprised in this one when Ramesses kid dies I thought that the last plague didn't happen that he he said he let them go beforehand but I think that's just like maybe at some point I was told a slightly nicer version um but of course then I also knew about the story of Passover so I, I don't know I think it's I find it very strange to be like to have been able to watch the you've been able to watch this film without like all the religious connotations that it that it has and take I think it's a great story but I can't remove it from like the fact that it's the story of the of the Hebrews and it's the story and it's like obviously you know Moses goes on to do things like the Ten Commandments which I was a bit surprised they cut but at that point they were already at 90 minutes so maybe <laughs> yeah. they had plans for a sequel yeah. yeah no I like I that's exactly the sort of Te- that that was what I was struggling with to sort of get into with the film is like which is weird because like obviously viewing it as just yeah like a myth or a piece of fiction it's like so many other movies are the same sort of thing and I can buy into that world and be fine but yeah, for some like reason Thor, with this yeah you can have a problem with <laughs> exactly but with this it's like like I guess yeah where it's like animation and then it's like oh believe in God or this will happen <laughs> then then yeah it's I just found it really difficult to connect with. Like, yeah, visually, real nice, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I was (laughs) really impressed with the... um, I must admit, I wasn't super keen on the style, if we want to sort of go away from just, like, yeah, just the the presentation of the film. I know they tried to make them look different so you could tell, like, who was Hebrew and who wasn't, but I don't know why they had to do that at the cost of foreheads because they just looked very strange a certain amount of space apparently like their their eyes were just far too far up their faces and it just like just i just found them look really jarring especially like the mother and then uh, moses himself at the at the end but then like some of them who were slightly round like his sister had a much more round face but it was yeah it was very i I thought stylistically i I didn't like it (laughs) sure i mean it's that thing i suppose where because i'm just thinking just thinking there on what um 
what you were saying as well, Dan, just about um about like not being able to separate it from the the religious side of it as well. And and I think like the more I think about it, the more I go like, ah, oh, okay, so like now I now this brings up this ethical question, right? Because I and then think about the animation as well. I go, okay, well I guess I was exactly the right age to be really susceptible to this film, but also young young enough and old enough to not be so manipulated into it that I bought into everything about it. You know, like I was like I was, you know, seven or eight, I was just the right age to be like I'm really swept up in the story of this, but I'm not so young that I'm going to see this and just be like, this all happened and I have to, you know, believe it or whatever. So I guess, like, I had I had just, like, enough of a beginning of critical thinking that that was the case. I, I always just saw it as fiction, you know. I never I never saw it as as something that I had to subscribe to in any way. But then that does create the question of, like, is... And I, I just on that, Helen, likewise with the animation, like, it never, never really fazed me because, you know, you just can't take it for granted as a kid. But now I kind of start to wonder, I'm like, is this a film that would be or could be construed as manipulative or unethical to show to kids, particularly as something that was made on such a massive scale as this big DreamWorks production. I mean, this wasn't some like little faith-based production designed to be shown in churches. Like this was mass entertainment designed to reach as many people as humanly possible. And I personally don't think, because I do believe that propaganda is very, very obvious. I don't think this is propaganda because I think if it was propaganda, they would not have been going to the lengths to develop the characters and the character dramas and those things as as well as they were and to put them as much at the forefront and to give Ramses as much sympathy as he gets even even Seti and the and the queen get like grace notes and glimmers of sympathy at the start and they're monsters so you know I don't I don't think it is propaganda and I don't think that's its intention but it's an interesting discussion to open up of being like is this a film you would show your kids I think it's also it's it depends on on your background and what you want your kids to believe which ultimately like parents sure. can say all they want that they want their children to make up their own minds but they definitely want them to make up their own minds in line with their own with their values see i i, I wouldn't say that at least with my experience the whole your parents want you to believe what they believe my parents were like the opposite of that my parents aren't like heavily christian but they believe in god i've had that talk with them before they're like we believe in god but we don't like go to church we don't really put too much weight into it um but they they said like when like i've never been baptized because my mom said like you can work that out when you're older if you want to be baptized or not but i went to a very christian school but not because i'm a christian or my parents are christian but because it was the only school kind of close by that i could go to i think it's yeah it's important i'm not sure what it's like in in australia but a lot of our primary schools are christian schools especially where yeah. i live Oh, where, I, where we live growing up, where it's a very Christian-dominated area. They're almost all, your options will be the kind of Christian school or the incredibly Christian Catholic school. Yeah, because I went to a really Christian school, but my parents were sort of never pushed me to be a Christian or, or learn about Christianity. And also I grew up like where like we had family friends that were witches and like Wic Wicca was very normal to me. And a lot oh. of like, yeah, like I grew up... Um, family friend is a white witch and it's like that was very normal to me growing up and my parents may never made a big deal about they're a witch they believe in weird stuff it was like no you respect what they believe and that's what you should do so all of like the attempts to make me a christian at school would kind of wash over because i was like this is a myth this is like this is the same as witchcraft to me like you respect it but you don't have to believe it even mm. if people want you to and then i went through that phase of like really being against christianity but not because like, I was like, I don't want to be a Christian, I'm going to rebel. It was more of like, well, I knew witches and no witch ever wanted me to be a witch. But I knew Christians and they kind of 
really fought for me to be a Christian. And that I never gelled well with people telling me what to do mm-hmm. like that. So when I got to this film, I, I approached it with the same idea. Like, it's it's Christian myth. Like, it's not... I know the story, but it is myth to me. It's not real. I know it's not. You know, it's it's funny because I... Um... A lot of my primary school education was in Steiner, and a massive thing at Steiner schools is exploring the mythologies of many, many different cultures. So yeah, there's like a Christian component, but you'll spend just as much time looking at like the Norse myths or the Greek myths or whatever. Or um, you know, we did a huge session on like the Ramayana from the Hindu myths, and all of it I found equally fascinating. So I guess in a lot of ways I approach stories like this the same way I would approach those stories because I'd kind of been taught reasonably early on this is a little bit after i saw the prince of egypt but reasonably early on to to kind of look at everything critically and take everything in and find the value in every possible belief system so i never really i I guess i never really looked at it in that very very christian context but you know it's, it's really interesting because i'm i'm with you in that i have always struggled with anybody telling me what to do or anybody you know more to the point telling me what to believe or how i should think about any given issue like i can't stand that and I remember I was when I was about 15 or 16, I went through this like, and it was the closest thing I had to like a rebellious teenage phase. I went through this like really intense atheist phase where like I was at boarding oh, yeah. school and like, you know, I would read the God delusion in front of the school pastor who was a really nice bloke, but I just did that because <laughs> I was like, yeah, this is me rebelling and like, yeah, screw religion. And I'd like sneak into the library and put the Bibles in the fiction section, run away and be like, yeah, look at me. I'm such a badass. And meanwhile, there's just some librarian <laughs> with a headache thing like, oh my God, this kid thinks he's so clever. Like there's always some dickhead every year who does this. Please stop. But I had this really interesting experience where every summer holidays at my hometown, there was this Christian youth group who would come and run like a, run like a youth shelter thing, like a, a kind of youth hangout space. And the first year they came was sort of me at the height of my most kind of extreme religion hating. And I was doing a, um, a summer holidays internship at the local paper and none of them wanted to go and cover this. So they sent me to do it. And I went along like, you know, scowling and fuming and ready to go in there and like, you know, just be an asshole to everyone basically. And they were just really nice. And I ended up spending a huge amount of that holidays, my friends and I spent a huge amount of that holidays hanging out with these guys. And they were just really friendly, really down to earth, really cool people. It was a it was a great experience. Nobody ever forced anything. Nobody ever even raised religion unless we raised it ourselves. And when we did, it would lead to these like huge in-depth conversations that were basically philosophical discussions about like, well, this is why I believe what I believe. But, you know, with with a lot of respect given to me being able to say, well, this is why I believe what I believe. And I never once felt like anybody was trying to force anything. So that was something that really opened my mind and made me go like, okay, well, maybe this isn't the case. But then fast forward to the next year, different group of, um, you know, young Christian people from the same organization come along and they were so much worse. Like the first night they were there, they one by one got up and gave a big speech about like how God changed their life and everything. And... At one point, they took a whole bunch of us local teenagers out to this trip down to the um the local river to go um to go tubing down the river, and I was sitting there talking to this one guy, and he was like asking those questions like, "Oh, what's your favorite movie? What's your favorite book? What's this? What's this? What's this?" And as I was wont to do then and am wont to do now, I went on this big speech about my favorite book and why I loved it and why it was special and blah blah blah, and he sits there and he's nodding along and he goes, "Yeah, cool man, yeah, yeah, my favorite book is the Bible." And this is why. <laughs> and I just sat there being like, oh, shut up. Like, I'm, you know, because the thing is, it was like, you're not listening to me. We're not having a conversation. This was some technique that some pastor taught you to try to draw me out so then you could start, you know, telling me about the good word. 
And and that kind of like brought me right back to being like, oh, piss off. But then it was funnily enough, a friend of mine who was like super, super like, you know, anti all of this stuff, who one day said to me, he was like, the thing you have to remember with those really hardline Christians who might be like trying to push their kids into believing something or trying to push you into believing something or whatever, the people who make you really frustrated and angry and you're just like, just piss off and let me make up my own mind is that they're not doing it to piss you off or to be a bad person. They're doing it because they genuinely believe they're saving your soul. And that I think is where it starts to get really tricky because to them, it's like life or death stakes. You know, it couldn't be any higher because you're going to hell if they don't convert you somehow. And to them, it's like, you know, and, and like once I kind of came to understand that, I was like, oh, it's so much more complicated because, you know, I don't have any time for, you know, for Christians who, you know, overtly hates one group or another because I'm like, well, the number one rule is like love, right? So, you know, like piss off. But I, when it comes to like hardline Christians who try to convert you, I'm like, oh, I find you frustrating. But at the same time, I guess I have to bear in mind that this this does really matter to you and this to you this is a high stakes thing and it does make the whole situation really really complicated and i guess you know if you start you know if you if you want to like go past their motives you're just like what's the whole system right like convincing them that if they don't repent they're going to go to hell and that starts when they're children and when you know they're doing what you were talking about helena and then that just passes on and passes on and passes on and creates this thing where it actually ends up shooting themselves in the foot because it's like well the moment you're one of those Jesus freaks, nobody's going to listen to you, are they? You know? Yeah, that's why I find these sorts of films a little bit insidious because they they really lull you into that false sense of this is going to be a fun kids film with the animation, with the characterization that's going on, which I do think they've done really, really well. And I, without the context of this being a story that I had bashed into my head over and over again, more so the Ten Commandments, but obviously that the Moses stuff does lead up to it. It just, I can't, because this film's so well done, it would be easier to dismiss it if it was really shit. <laughs> and be like, nice <laughs> totally. try, Chris- totally. Christians. Like, But instead, I'm like, I actually really enjoyed lots of parts of this film. And it's gorgeous. And like the water animation and the the, fe- the genuine fear of when they get to the Red Sea. And I, obviously, I know it's going to part because, you know, you know that bit. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really... <laughs> Parts of the Red Sea, yeah. Um, it might have been mentioned once or twice. I loved the way they animated it because it was so different mm. to how I'd imagined it in my head before because I've had this story sort of, you know, floating around in the ether, like Moses parts of the Red Sea. In my head, of course, sea was red because <laughs> quite a literal child. Um, but the height of the water, obviously it makes a lot of sense when I think about it logically, mm. like, yeah, seas are pretty deep. They're kind of famous for it. But yeah, it was, it was really gorgeously done. And the fact that they still struggle, like they... They have to get over these, you know, obviously the, the sea floor isn't flat and there's this huge effort and this huge toll it takes on them and they like lose, you know, their carts and things get left behind. And then, you know, they then have to watch the soldiers chasing after them, knowing that they're trying to escape and they're leading these soldiers into a trap. And like, yeah, Moses has to make me make that call of like, yeah, these guys are going to follow us and they're going to die. Yeah. What, what? I know that Ramesses gets washed up, but um, <laughs> that bit I'm like... Pfft. Okay, yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> sure he did. What what I was wondering is let let's say that Ramesses had let them go, right? And didn't chase after them after. What was their plan when they got to the Red Sea? <laughs> Cuz like they didn't have boats or anything. I think that's a, you know, take it up with the Bible kind of kind of question because you know there's, <laughs> there's a few things that this film is a little bit beholden to unfortunately that I don't think you can really blame the filmmakers 
four, but um, but yes, no, I'm yeah. with you. Um, but I also think if you start uh, interrogating the logic of any part of the Bible, it will start falling apart very, very quickly. Yep. <laughs> but it's you know it's funny because like I guess m- what what I would push back slightly on on that argument of of it being potentially insidious, and I'm I'm very open to it because it's a reading of the film I hadn't considered before, and it's coming from a perspective and a context I hadn't really applied to it. It actually makes me wonder now if one of the reasons the film hasn't had the staying power outside certain circles that um, that like a Disney film would have or whatever, where it's so ubiquitous and everybody knows it and everybody's seen it and everybody knows the songs. I-, I wonder if that is due to the religious thing. But I also just think I love, and the thing I've come to appreciate more as an adult, is the ambivalence of it. Because I think at the end, when they walk out and they sing There Can Be Miracles and there's that like that beautiful uh, Hebrew part where all the children are singing and everything... To to me, I've always found that moment so beautiful in terms of the emotions it evokes because it's not pure celebration. Like, it's partly celebration, but it's celebration as they're walking out of, like, the ruins of Egypt and you just see all the broken soldiers, like, pulling pulling their, um, whatever they called, you know, the, um, the, the, the things they wear on their heads off and everything and everything's fallen apart because of the plagues and stuff and you've seen the children die and I feel like it kind of makes you sit in the discomfort of the fact that it's like, yeah, okay... Like, the Egyptians did something really awful, but God's kind of done the exact same thing, and now we're sort of having to see the pain that they've gone through, and it kind of, it holds that side by side with the relief and the celebration of the Hebrews leaving, and, you know, the moment where Ramesses is, like, laying his son down, and the film does, you know, it doesn't really build up his son as a character, but it takes the time to to show you the kid. He's not just this, like, faceless idea. Like, he's he's just a little kid. Like, he's this, like cute little yeah. child who loves his dad and it doesn't i feel like a lesser film or a film that was more set on manipulation wouldn't make those choices it wouldn't do those things it would brush that stuff under the carpet and just make it more purely victorious at the end and that to me is why i think it works divorced from the religious context but at the same time i'm now thinking that I know quite a few people who are as passionate about this movie as I am, and none of them come from a religious backgrounds. I don't know a single person from a religious background, either in that they are they were religious then or grew up in a religious household or are, st- or are still religious now, who have the same passion for this film as most of the agnostic or secular people I know who do, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, definitely. I think if I'd if I'd just if I'd been able to approach this film without the the subtext that like the same way yeah like we approach other the other stories like regardless of what they're based on like it would i'd have probably enjoyed it more i don't i mean also as a kid i'd have probably still not enjoyed it because there's no princess you know i i was very set in my ways about what what i liked but yeah there were you know the songs in it are super catchy and i loved the um i loved the animation the um especially the um like hieroglyphic wall painting scenes that bit was really cool i like that yeah (laughs) like but the just the sheer horror as he's like realizing what his what his dad did and like that click that you might have of realizing that that's why moses was sent in that basket to save his life because the pharaoh was killed like they were going around killing children and he should have died like he, he like um moses should have been killed 
it really um yeah it, it's a really it's a really good film in that respect and it is it's really not like that's the, the benefit of the animation is that you can have all these like this this sudden change in style that would be really grating and weird like if you had something like that in a in a um, live action film if it suddenly you know went into like cave painting style or wall painting style and then you know it but it, what it does is it, it shows him like kind of processing and come and like realizing what has happened and what could have been and you know what his what his dad did and how he can't accept that and like he's really you know he is personifying these slaves because he hadn't before because you know obviously you're a, he's a product of his uh of his growing up he doesn't see slaves as people and then he he does and that's um yeah obviously really traumatizing well yeah just to realize but... you know that that great line that he has to Ramses where he's like no kingdom should be no no empire should be built on the backs of slaves which is you know very very pointed given that it's an american movie but um but it, it, it is interesting kind of like you know the, the perspective of like somebody's kind of eyes opening i mean it, it almost honestly ironically makes me think of like the stories you hear about kids leaving the westboro baptist church right like having been brought up in a really really monstrous doctrine and then kind of suddenly realizing or not suddenly but having everything having the things they've been denying for years slowly eroded to the point where they're just like i actually can't turn a blind eye to this anymore i have to walk away from this and i have to kind of grapple with the guilt of the fact that purely by being born into this family or in this case delivered into this family via a reed basket in a river i'm i'm culpable you know i've been made culpable in something that i had no say in or no choice in and that i didn't understand because i've been effectively indoctrinated like it's 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 really interesting and it remains relevant today and like in, in so many environments so and, and that's kind of why i think that it does kind of enter the territory of myth or archetype which a lot of bible stories do where it's like it has that 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 resonance where you can apply the themes or the ideas or the conflicts to it to so many situations that are not purely beholden to ancient egypt you know or to biblical stories or whatever they they do continue to resonate in different ways in different environments of the present day, which is which is chilling, but that is what makes good storytelling, right? That is what makes the great stories that we come back to again and again, is that they have that that universal quality that makes you go, well, this is always going to be relevant because these issues are always going to be here, whether they should or shouldn't be. Um, I, I just want to kind of jump to you for a sec, Dan, if that's okay, because at the very outset of this, you said... Um, like, yeah, your reaction was, yeah, it was fine. You hadn't seen it before. So so talk me through, because you didn't see this as a kid, and I presume you didn't have a ton of context for it before this. Apart from the religious side of it, what was your experience of watching this film? Like, coming into it from, from as an adult? Because I'm so fascinated by the experience of somebody who didn't have the the, the baseline context of a child's perspective on this. Yeah, the, the only other context I had for this was... Um... You know, you know the bit where um, the, the, there was that gif of him where it's like reversed and it's him like shaking his head and then he hugs his dad? <laughs> like, that's, yeah, yeah. that's the only thing I'd seen. But so, so yeah, I wasn't, I don't know why I wasn't expecting like the religious stuff when I went into it. I, I didn't know what the story was going to be about. But yeah, like going into it with, yeah, the sort of adult mind frame, I was like, oh, cool. It's like, you know. A nice animation movie i wasn't expecting as many songs and i don't know why <laughs> like it was just um i don't know i th i think the problem was how hard i found it to separate the religious stuff from the rest of it because at the end of the day it's it's a story about a guy who successfully frees a shitload of slaves right that's that's a good thing that's 
but most people can probably get on board with that. <laughs> yeah, one, right? yeah. But then the way that I guess the yeah the way that it's done of like you know oh this this one guy has now been told by the thing on fire <laughs> that he has to save these people, and as much as he tries, it's never actively Moses that actually ends up saving them. As much as he's talking to Ramesses, it's just the the plague stuff that that actually makes him change his mind. God is the one doing everything, and so that's what leads to them being freed. And I found the like the juxtaposition between yeah, you see all of these like firstborns dying and stuff from after, you know, murdering a bunch of lambs, painting their blood on your door so that God doesn't get you. <laughs> and so going from that scene of like the the weird mist going around and all the kids dying and then it's like Hey, miracles are real. We can have a little sing song. It was it was so weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, the the tone in the film is super weird, especially when they go from like cuddling lambs to yeah, killing lambs. Yeah, um, <laughs> was like hmm. Okay, the most challenging part for me wasn't it. It was the opposite, really, Dan. From from that where it's like oh, it's it's not Moses. It's the pits where it is Moses that I'm like. Mm. No, it's supposed to be... It, the whole point of faith is that you don't have this proof. And when his stick literally turns into a snake in front of you, yeah. it's like, I could have done without that. I feel like that's just far too on the nose. This is real. This is fact. You don't have to... Be, like, Obviously, I'd believe in God if he started doing things like this. <laughs> um, the whole point is that it's supposed to be a little bit more nuanced than that. There's a little bit more... You know, like he's uh, Moses is a prophet. And you have to have faith in him, not in his stick. <laughs> and his stick that can turn a river red so, and then yeah, bring I something from I, I, I push back on that on a couple of fronts. P- partly because he's he's not trying to convince the Hebrews, he's trying to convince Pharaoh and it doesn't work because, you know, Pharaoh straight away, you know, Ramesses straight away turns to Hotep and Hoy and they're like, oh, we can make our own snakes. And, you know, it's all smoke and mirrors and whatever. And then, you know, with the blood yeah. and the water and everything, like, and, and to me that just speaks to... It's denial, right? Like, it's denial from anyone where it's just kind of like, I'm looking for anything to justify my perspective, which is what Ramesses does. And because his perspective is so entrenched where it's like, okay, well, I I will pretty much cling on to anything that confirms that I am supposed to be here. I'm fair on the morning, the evening star, all of that stuff. So so I, I didn't mind that so much because the other thing is that like, for the Hebrews who Moses frees, I don't think their faith ever really wavers. Like, I don't think they need Moses to walk in there and prove anything to them because they already still believe, you know, they, they already like believe in God. They just need, you know, they, they, they set aside, like send a shepherd to shepherd us. Like Moses' whole goal role there is to guide them out and lead them out and be the leader and the figurehead. But I don't think he's there to prove anything to them. I think their faith is pretty unshakable because I think if, if I understand the, the story correctly, the whole idea is that, this is God rewarding their faith. So that I don't mind. And the fact that the Egyptians don't respond to it, I don't mind either. I think I think if I'm going to, if I can be a screenwriting wanker for just one second, and I'm sorry <laughs> about this, to me, what affects me more, and I do understand that it's like, if, if you look at like traditional screenwriting, like, you know, ideas where it's like the midpoint of the story is the point where your character goes from reactive to active and the midpoint would be the burning bush. So it's like, yeah, the first half of the film, Moses is like, you know, reacting to what he's being told and running away and trying to hide and everything and the burning bush sends him back. But then he doesn't really do a lot because you are right, Dan, and that God is doing everything. And a lot of that I just kind of forgive because I'm like, well, you know, you are at a certain point beholden to the story that you're adapting and 
there's only sort of so much you can only so much mess time. with that. I wasn't expecting them yeah. to get through all of the plagues in a song. We, except it's a great song <laughs> and it is an amazing song. song and the, the imagery and everything. But but see, that that actually comes to what my, what my point is in that, which is that to me, I fundamentally see it as a story of two brothers. Like more than I see it as a story of the book of Exodus or a story about God or anything, what emotionally moves me about it and what draws me in and what makes me come back to it time and time again. And like any good film, everything else works in concert with it. But... It is the story of Moses and Ramesses, and it is the story of Moses finally facing up to all the things he looked away from, because presumably he walked past those hieroglyphs a lot as a kid and never really thought about it because he didn't have the means to. But, but, you know, I buy that because when you're a kid, you know, you don't necessarily look at the troubling things around you. You take them for granted, and it's only when you get a bit older and something comes along to shake your worldview that you go, oh my God, hang on, this is not okay. And... To me, the arc of his is him getting to a place where he's like, I am going back and I'm facing up to this and I am, you know, taking responsibility and I'm going to, you know, come here and like, and do the right thing. But to do that, the, the biggest stakes, well, what's at stake for him or the biggest cost for him is the fact that it will mean going up against the brother who he loves, who is the most important person in his life and who yeah. he still loves. And it's the fact that he kind of holds the line through all of that, that I think becomes his arc more so than him actually doing anything super active in the second half because you're right he doesn't really need to like he kind of just rocks up and then god sort of handles it and his his challenge i've always seen it as is just holding the line in the face of that i mean he says in the song you know it's that beautiful line where they do the um the mini reprise of all i've ever wanted where he says you know this was my home all this pain and devastation how it tortures me inside all the innocent who suffer from your stubbornness and pride like it's you can see in that song that he is tortured he's being torn up by this but his role is holding the line in the face of seeing his home falling apart and seeing his brother hate him and seeing all of this happen but that to me is what his arc ultimately is and he does hold through and he does get out of the end but what i what i love about it is that it leaves him with a feeling that's not Dissimilar to the feeling I get at the end of Return of the King, which is this really bittersweet conclusion where you just kind of go, well, yeah, they won and it's happy and it's great, but Frodo is forever broken by it. You know, he's never going to, yeah. you know, he, he he has that great line. Where he's like, you know, we, we set out to save the Shire and it has been saved, but not for me. He can't go back because he's too changed. And it, it, it's not a one-to-one comparison, but that's kind of how I feel at the end. You know, when Moses turns away, it's like, where he turns away from the water and sort of finally turns away from Ramesses and walks into the future. I'm like, yeah, I feel like there is a a catharsis of sorts there, but like any catharsis, it's shot through with the pain of the fact that it's like, it's always going to be complicated by the fact that for this to be achieved, you literally had to be part of the destruction of everything you ever knew and loved. Like, as he says in the song, all I ever wanted. And, and to me, that's where the film derives its power from. Because again, I, the fact that I can come back to this now as a secular adult and still find that it moves me ultimately comes down to i think the character work you know and and that doesn't say that the the more troubling aspects as pertains to the religious stuff doesn't coexist with that or doesn't make it a more complicated viewing experience but i think for me in the end that's what all is always going to win out yeah the 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 story of the brothers and him freeing the slaves and stuff is is all like yeah they're, they're the bits i enjoyed it was it was all the god stuff that really just took me mm-hmm. out of it it's a bit <laughs> like, preachy yeah. it's uh, just it's just so it is just so impossible for me to imagine this film without that 
that context yeah. and without that you know i i know the before stories i know the run-up i know the after like it's it's all stuff that i'm so like old testament because exodus is only is it book three i do not know like i read the bible as a kid and like you know the, <laughs> i never got super far in but i think i made it to the moses stories so it's it's so hard to like yeah i like the characterization but i'm like I'm 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 struggle to give the screenwriters proper credit for these characters because I'm like, well, they're taking it from the Bible. These are this is a this is a thing that has been written down for centuries. I, like, I how do they? Point. How can they take credit for it? But you're right. Like, it is really well done. It is really powerful. I think that's where I kind of push back because to, to me the um to me the genius of the screenwriting is that the Moses Ramsey's relationship isn't in the Bible. Like, it's just Pharaoh. You know, he like for all for all because that was the biggest thing that jumped out to me when I when I read this story as a kid was that I was like, oh, it's not Ramesses. Like, there, there is no Ramesses. It's just Pharaoh. You know, Moses brought up with Pharaoh, and then he kills a man, and he runs off, and he comes back, and the Pharaoh there is just referred to as Pharaoh. So for all anyone knows, it could just be his father. And to me, I think that the the genius of this, that the filmmakers have looked at that and said, well, hang on, there's something that hasn't been unpacked here, which is the emotional turmoil of a man being put against his family, which, which is not in the Bible. Like, it, it's implicit there in the broad strokes of the story, but the masterstroke of this film is that choice to be like, well, it's not his father he's going up against, it's his brother. Like, if it was his father, then yeah, sure, you get the classic, you know, the, the son defeats the father, you know, um, facing up to the sins of the past and everything. But it's way more complicated than that because it's the brother who he grew up with. It's his peer. It's his equal. It's the person who he shared everything with. And it's that change to the source material, which is kind of quite a small one in some respects because it doesn't actually change the outcome or the way the story plays out but to me it totally changes the texture and the heart of it and that to me is what elevates this but i say that with full appreciation of um of the more troubling aspects elsewhere i really agree i think the film humanizes the story a lot more than from what i remember in the bible being told about it in the bible and being read it it humanize, but it doesn't dehumanize the Moses and Ramsey story. It humanizes everything. Yeah. From what I remember, the the like the plagues in the film are very. It's pretty quick. It goes through most of them pretty quickly, and it that's kind of the same in the Bible. There isn't much time put into the sort of effect and impact of the plagues. It's just kind of said as fact. It's sort of the the plagues happened, and then that's it. Um, but in the film, like the the one plague that. I think is given the one sort of thing that's given a lot more weight is the firstborn part because it it could have just said and then we take your firstborn and that's it and move on but it didn't it showed you all of these children living normal lives just sleeping in beds with their families and and living normal lives and they're dead and it it really shows you that more than just Ramsey's it shows you like all of it and even when it's discovered that like Ramsey's child is dead and it's the end of it you hear wailing in the background, you hear screaming and crying. And it's like, and it, it, I think it's that point that is like the humanization of this story that mm. I think sets the film apart from the Bible story. Um, yeah, and the um, the bit with the cloth over Ramsey's kid and he lifts him up and you can see the child's face outlined in the, in the cloth over him. And he's obviously, you know, he's dead, but it's so haunting and so like... You know, it does make you really, really impassioned about Ramesses and, you know, what he's lost for, you know, he thinks, both people think they're right. Yeah. Um, and I know that we don't get much characterization of the child, but because he's so similar to the character of the Ramesses that we saw as a child, 
I don't, I don't it, yeah. It, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like you can see what this child could become. And yeah. that, you know, that happy sort of doting, like older brother. You don't, you don't need to be given like yeah. full backstories for. Yeah, all you don't children. need, you don't need that to be sad that a kid has been murdered. Yeah, but also, you like, you don't need to see all of the children grow up. You just need to see them that they're with loving families. Yeah, and they're 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 existing and they're happy, and then it's all taken away, and that is like the impact of that scene because they could have just skipped it and had the same impact that all the other plagues kind of had. Yeah. They didn't. They really lent into that one. So I wanted to just talk a little bit about the the comedic side, like the, the comic relief, and then also like the casting, the casting in this film. Because the casting's insane. Casting's brilliant. Like I think that made this film, as much mm. as the animation made it, they got the best voice actors in the sort of sphere at the time to do it. Like voice actors, they're all like just they're great just actors. actors. Like, yeah. 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 But, they, but they they got them all, and they all, they're all like, pretty much all of them are Shakespearean actors. What yeah, I did find really strange, and... a really strange choice was to have very British Ramesses, very American Californian yeah. Moses. Yeah, they're all very white, but it was 1998, so... No, no, it's in like, just that you've got, like, Ramesses has an English accent. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it kind of reminds me of, um, it, it's this weird thing in, um, in animation, I think, where, you know, one of my favourite, uh, one, one of my favourite recent films is uh, How to Train Your Dragon, and oh, I say recent, it's over 10 years old now, but How to Train Your Dragon, oh, I, I yeah. love How to Train Your Dragon, and I remember, um, I remember reading an interview with the director saying that his dream is that the How to Train Your Dragon trilogy, you know, he's like, I don't see it as children's films. He's like, you know, I see it as a trilogy that could sit on, the box set could sit on the shelf comfortably next to your Lord of the Rings set, your Star Wars set, your all of that. And I love those films. I'm like, I think they almost get there, but there's these weird little ticks, which I think come down to the, the animation industry, which is exactly that same thing where it's like, why are all the parents Scottish and all the kids American? <laughs> It, it doesn't make mm. any sense. And it's it's exactly the same in this where it's like, but, but then I suppose you could kind of make an argument and it's, it's, a, it's a flimsy argument, I grant you that, that like all the Hebrews are American and all the Egyptians are British. And I don't know what that's saying, but then you go, well, then Hotep and Hoy are American as well. So I, yeah, look, I don't know. I think you, you almost just have to kind of chalk it up to that, that weird animation yeah. thing where there just isn't, a ton of logic to um to the why this accent's here and why this accent's here yeah you just get the good voice the good voices to do it with that have the right cadence and the right power uh, and then you just go though the, the accent doesn't matter but yeah uh, voldemort as ramesses is great so as i want to talk about this film i want to talk about a bit of the production Oh, okay. Because the production of this film is is interesting because it was made from what I can tell it was a um, it was a difficult thing to make and then it it came out the other side and didn't do well. But from from what I've read the internal the way they saw this internally like this was the project you wanted to work on at, at Dreamworks at the time. This was the important project that they were doing. So you wanted to be on this project because this was it meant something. They were doing something. It was it was um, more than just a film. It was more than just a kid's animation. And at the same time, they were also making Shrek. And this is a story told by quite a few people that worked on Prince of Egypt. When you, they were working on Prince of Egypt, if they couldn't keep up, if they couldn't work on it, they were relegated to Shrek. <laughs> if, if you didn't do a good job oh, on Jesus. Prince of Egypt, you were relegated to Shrek. And it was called, they called Shrek the Gulag. And they called it, <laughs> they called it being Shreked. Um, 
Shrek was this like it was a childish story. It was full of stupid jokes and and it was edgy and it was like weird and, and it was just like it was just a kids film with some adult humor in it. And at the time, it didn't have Myers working on it. I forgot the other actor's name. He passed away before they finished recording and they re-recorded it. And that was when Shrek was made Scottish. Hmm. Um, and But like Shrek was the film you didn't want to work on. And Prince of Egypt was the important story. And then Prince of Egypt bombed. Later became like a, um, a cult critical love. Like critics love it. People love it for what it is. And Shrek the, the bad film was one of the biz- biggest successful most successful films ever one of the most successful animations ever and i i lo- i kind of that's such a dumb story to come out of these sort of two very different films were kind of being made side by side and one was a punishment it's so funny because it the funniest thing i think about that story and i'd never heard that before and but you know it doesn't surprise me at all because i think it is so often the case where the passion projects don't initially hit big and it Mm. tends to be the and look i've found that in my own writing where it's like the things that have been the most successful for me tend to be the things that i'm the least passionate about whereas and it's not say i'm not passionate about them because i am i wouldn't write if i wasn't passionate about it but i've also found that like the things that meant the most to me are the ones that sort of just seem to get a bit ignored and i you know i I think you know whatever you can accuse the prince of egypt of in terms of shortcomings or whatever else you can tell every frame of it is suffused with passion like this was a passion project for the people who made it and that's very very obvious like it's made with immense love and immense care and in some ways i think it's a shame that it didn't hit the way it did hit the way it was intended to but then at the same time i kind of go like i almost love that about it like i think it i think in some ways it train it must have changed dreamworks's trajectory because They've never since tried something on this scale, but then, or, or you know, of this um, of this intensity or this particular style. But then, not a lot had been done of this particular style or intensity or scope before that in animation either. Like it was an experiment that financially didn't pay off, but over twenty years later, we're still here talking about it, and it still obviously retains a place in the hearts of many, many people. And I mean, it's just had its um its West End musical open up and apparently do really well, which just says that, you know, it obviously has endured and it has sustained. And, you know, it doesn't, it won't ever um, generate the memes that Shrek, you know, generates. But I think for the people who loved it, the the passion that is there for it will probably be, for many, many people, far more intense than something like Shrek ever could be. And that's at least been my experience. And I love Shrek, by the way. I'm certainly not bad mouth yeah. Shrek. Yeah. I adore Shrek. No, they're, they're very, very different films that have very different impacts. And it was, um, I did print, I can't remember if Prince of Egypt actually won an award, but it was definitely nominated. This, well, the standard, I think, because they obviously kicked off anyone who wasn't good enough, standard of the animation you went is, to shrek yeah is really yeah. good and i mean if we look at like what happens when that goes wrong we've got titan ae as only two years later oh, which is just such an ugly mess of a film because of the bad choices of animation style and the bad use of cg i was gonna say can i just secretly admit that i adore titan ae although actually that would have been great <laughs> That, but, but that said, that's a film I haven't seen since it came out. Like, I watched a bunch when I was a kid. I haven't seen it since. I think you guys have already done an episode of it, unless I'm getting it mixed up yeah. with something else. It's, God, okay, it's then, so I'm, much <laughs> uglier than you can possibly remember. You'll be remembering okay, the lovely can... short part of it that's hand-drawn. The rest of the ugly... Yeah. Imagine, like, PlayStation 1 graphics, but you dropped your PlayStation 1 and your television. 
Fine. Yeah. That one that one can just endure in my memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. recommend We definitely upset Jamie, who um, a friend of the pod who brought brought that film to our attention. <laughs> he was so disappointed <laughs> that it didn't live up to his memory. So yeah, I think keep that one close to your heart and away from your screen. I'll leave yeah, I'll leave that where it is. <laughs> this is a unique podcast where we get to tell people to not watch films because they're bad now. And just remember them good. Yeah. Uh, like Flubber. Like Flubber. Oh. And Tiny. But yeah, no, I, 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 this film absolutely, if it did win an award, it absolutely deserves it for animation and for everything. Yeah. It's just a, it's a lot to get through for a film, I think is the main complaint I have for it. So if you're not like sat down to watch it and you're not 100% paying attention, this film feels like it drags. So, um, yeah, which Dan, get... how would you, yeah, yeah how would you rate this 10. film? Especially, I want to, I want to know before discussion and after discussion, because my rating has definitely <laughs> changed having talked about it. Gabe has convinced us all to like this film. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm a secret sleeper agent for the Prince of Egypt. I don't think anybody else is that, but I will wear the badge with pride. Which is a very specific job and doesn't come up often, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, funnily enough, it doesn't. It's a weird one for the resume. Yeah, I think it, it's improved a little bit from this, but still my improved score is going to be a five commandments out of ten. Because, yeah, like, I, I can appreciate the animation and, yeah, like, the story of of the brothers and the freeing of the slaves and everything but yeah like like we've said before just trying to disconnect the sort of religious aspects of it you can't like that's that's the problem <laughs> yeah i'd give this yeah five five out of ten Gabe out of ten i think we can guess from from the past like long conversation we can guess what it is out of ten but what's, what's your out of ten for this film i'm giving it a big old uh, well, no, I was going to say 11. I'm not going to say that. Um, no, I will give it a big old 10 very biased plagues out of 10 because I just, I, I can't, I, I love this movie too much. And I, and look, I, the way I see it is I'm just kind of like any film that I can watch over and over and over again and it can still like get this kind of an emotional reaction out of me and that I can still be this passionate about and I can still find new things in time after time after time. It gets to a point where you know, ratings out of 10 just become so meaningless because it's like, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you rate your love affair out of 10, you know, <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> so, so look, to me, it's, to me, it's that because like this film just means so, so much to me. And honestly, it's just been awesome to get the chance to talk about it because it's, I think, I, I don't think I would be the person I am today without this movie. I don't think, I certainly would not be the writer I am wow. today without this movie. Um, I mean, my first book, Boone Shepherd, is, is a very, very thinly veiled retelling of this story. So, you know, like, it's, <laughs> it's, it, it's, its impact on me has been immeasurable. And, um, and I watched it again just the other night, and it still has that impact on me. And I will watch it again countless times for the rest of my life. And I have no reason to believe at any point it'll wane. So it's a big old 10 for me. Oh, lovely. I'm going to give this, uh, before talking about it, three African animals trying to kill Moses on his way down the Nile. <laughs> I went into it, I think because I had, I went into it with so much baggage that I couldn't see the forest for the trees with it. I was so, yeah, like I found it the religious connotation so frustrating. But talking through it and actually talking about the bits of the film that I can appreciate with reflection, um, it does go up to like a five. Yeah, five. Uh, because... There's so there is so much to like about this film, and I wish I could experience it without my predisposition and my like my, my background in Christianity and my background in being 
and feeling indoctrinated because it's a great it is a great story like it is really and it's beautifully told but it's yeah that that religious aspect i just can't can't separate it and i wish i could because there's there's certain scenes in us like yeah the relationship between like moses and ramesses is is so interesting but i wish yeah i wish i could enjoy it more i think is of my take from it especially hearing how much it you know how passionate you are about it, it makes me really want to like it and i'm close but I can't say, you know, hand in my heart that I do like this film or that I'll try and watch it again. Maybe in the future, um, with a sort of with fresh eyes, I'll try and I'll try and watch it again more critically and less religiously. But yeah, at the moment, I'm still still struggling so much with that. See, I'm it's this is it's interesting because I'd give it an eight out of ten. Eight um, sheep sacrifices, eight out of ten, and it, I think it's really interesting that the two two of us that can't separate the religion from the story. It's a sort of. It was a difficult film for you guys to get through, but the two of us that did separate it and don't have that connection and can see it and see it as just pure myth that we liked it so much. Yeah. Like, I, I, like it's an eight because this film. I felt like this film really drags, and it might have been because I wasn't in the mindset to watch it and I was kind of tired. But the animation's brilliant, the story's brilliant, the writing is brilliant, um, the music is amazing. And yeah, but I could completely separate it from myself because I'd never been inside. I've always been on the outside looking in when it came to Christianity and like most religions, respectfully looking in and sort of treating all religions similarly, which is like there's a lot of mythos, there's a lot of story involved. And yeah, I just think, I think it's really interesting that the, it seems to be if you have a bad experience with Christianity, this film, at least from like what the examples we have here, this film becomes kind of difficult to watch. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah definitely. Yeah. I think it's, uh, yeah, Christianity ruined the Prince of Egypt film for me. <laughs> it's the worst thing they've ever done, really. You know, if you weigh it all up and you go through all the history. Um, but like, look, it's it's so interesting because like, again, I think it comes back to the fact that, you know, religion wasn't really a factor when I first saw it. So it, it's like I have to remind myself sometimes, oh, it's a God movie. Um, but, you know, so so I completely, completely appreciate that side of it without really being able to see it myself because, you know, there's the thing where it's like everybody's got their own bias that is dependent on their life experience and what they bring to the table and everything. And that's why if, if we didn't have that, you wouldn't have subjective different responses to films. So honestly, it's just kind of fascinating to get the chance to kind of um, to talk about something I love this much and just hear such different perspectives on it and get some insight into why. And it's it's definitely making me look at the film a different way, which is hugely valuable. Like what else could you ask for from something like this? We, yeah, it, it's like bringing that subjectivity to, to the table and sort of, I think the reason you listen to podcasts like this or you do podcasts like this is to hear those different perspectives and, um, and to hopefully have them inform your own view of the film, which is such a valuable thing. Yeah, and I think it shows that nostalgia works oh. both ways. <laughs> yeah, and, and, absolutely. Yeah. And, and context and childhood context <laughs> is so important for why some of these films hold up for some of us and, you know, why you can gloss over some things and some things don't occur to you until someone else points them out. Yeah. Because um, you do get these sort of blinkers. The, this one's definitely got the nostalgia, uh, the bad nostalgia of Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> the bad nostalgia of Christianity. I love that. Uh, well, we've nearly been recording for as long as the movie goes for, so yeah. we should probably start yeah. wrapping this No, it's been really, it's been so interesting <laughs> been really to have good, a sort of yeah. serious podcast yeah, episode as well. This is definitely then. the most, like, this is the least we've sworn and um, <laughs> joked. Around. Yeah. I just want to say there is one butt joke. There's yeah. two butt jokes. There's an upskirt joke and there is a butt joke in this film, which I wasn't expecting, but they're there. 
Right. Half butts. Just, that makes it a kid film. That makes it a kid film. <laughs> That's the criteria. Yep. Yeah. So I have one one last question, Gabe. Are you going to go watch this film again now? Oh yeah, I'd like that's that's an absolute yeah. given. There's there's no <laughs> doubt whatsoever that I will watch it countless more times before I am I will be pushed into my grave grasping at my DVD from <laughs> Prince of Egypt, which by that point will be so worn out and DVD plays won't even exist. But that will be the case. Yeah, just have it as an implant. That's right. Every yeah, absolutely just like. Like your brain chip implant. Like your economy at all times. <laughs> every, every time you think, oh, maybe I'll watch Titan AE now, watch Prince of Egypt yeah, instead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That's my big takeaway from tonight. <laughs> uh, well, with that, I have been Dan. I have been Michael. And I've been Helena. And I've been Gabe. And Gabe, where can people find you? Um, I'm on Twitter at uh, GoBergmoser, so G-O Bergmoser. Um, and my books are basically in all good bookstores, I hope. So, um, so yeah, The Hunted, The Inheritance, True Colors with White Lie, which has not come out in the UK. I think that's Australia only at the moment. And I've got a couple of things on Audible as well that you can only find there. So if you Google my name, it'll all turn up. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on. It's, it's been great having you as a guest. Yeah, it's been so interesting. Thanks so much for having yeah. me. Yeah, and so so serious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, I feel like I sap the humour out of these conversations unintentionally. But yeah, no, it's been great. And solid. thank you Thanks. for giving us so much of your time. No, that's all right. Thanks for having me. Any chance to talk about this film is fine by me. Well, you can find this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Hilton Pod. That's at H-I-L-T-M Pod. Uh, we're on Discord as well. Um, let us know what you thought of Prince of Egypt. It's been a yeah, quite an insightful one, I think. Yeah, I'm really curious to see like did other people bring all that all that baggage with them watching this? Do people remember it fondly? <laughs> Do they hate it? Yeah, or was it just one you never heard of because it was lost to the ether of time? It was lost to Shrek. <laughs> it was, lost yeah, to Shrek. <laughs> it got a Shrek. <laughs> We normally sing the, the theme song and hope it gets cut out and replaced. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> I adore and respect this movie too much to butcher anything on its soundtrack by trying to sing it on air. So I'm going to just play the fifth on this one. <laughs>